as I was preparing for this message, um, there were several places that my mind went. Um, and I thought that originally I would be speaking from Philippians, where I have spoken a few times now, probably actually just twice, um, when I stepped in for a pastor. But as I was preparing, we were having fellowship at a friend's home, and this passage just re-elevated with me. It's actually where, as teens, in our teen class, we've been in this passage. Uh, for the past several weeks, our, um, our Sunday school times have been focused on one word. And the key word, I wonder if any of our teens remember it. They may not. The key word, does anybody remember? Word. We're looking at the word of God. And so we've looked at the word of God and how God created through his word. And thank you, Jamari. Good memory there, my brother. Um, the word of God and how God created through his word. Also, we looked at how Christ used the word to resist temptation. Um, we've also looked at how God's word, he says, if you meditate in my word day and night, hey, you're going to be like that tree that's planted by water. It has what it needs. And not only does it have what it needs, but it will bear fruit in its season. Its leaf will not wither. We've seen that the word of God is powerful. And the key word for this message will not be word. But as we've been going forward, we looked last time at Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. And these are three sons, right? Samuel from one family, Hophni and Phinehas from another. And where I was going to take our teens was to look at when God speaks to Samuel, his word. And how does Samuel respond? How does God lead him to respond? How does he learn to respond when he says, speak, Lord, your servant hears? But in between that, we have this passage that uh, Kevin read for us. And we see a contrast in between Hophni and Phinehas and Samuel. Hophni and Phinehas, whose father is the high priest, he works in the temple. They have been raised in this place. Um, and yet the Bible says of them they were men of Belial. Basically, that's saying they are worthless. Worthless men. Worthless men in ministry. And you contrast that with Samuel, who has been given to the Lord, and God will then begin to elevate and select Samuel and speak into Samuel. Samuel has been given to the Lord. I want to focus on Hophni and Phinehas. In that passage that Kevin really highlighted for us, verse 25. We're going to think about this passage, and I want you to seal this in your mind. What causes a father to say this to his sons? Eli, as an old man, these sons are not teenagers. Samuel is young, but Hophni and Phinehas are not young. They are grown. They are now working in the temple. And we will find out later in the book of Samuel that um, I believe it is Phinehas has a wife and she is pregnant with a young man. I don't know that that is true at the time that we're reading in, in chapter 2. But these men are not, not just young. But he says to them, if one man sinned against another, if one guy sins against somebody else, does wrong to someone, whether he punches him, whether he steals something that belongs to him, whatever he does, if one man does wrong to another man, the judge will judge. Somebody's going to step in the middle and say, hmm, What's going on here? What is the right response? 
And he says, but if a man sin against the Lord, who's going to step in the middle? Who's going to entreat between the Lord and this man? Let's look at their, um, let's first look at, their, look at their trespass of Hophni and Phinehas. So it says here, they were men of Belial, they were worthless. What made them worthless? As I thought about this there, um, last week when we talked about it, Amaya's friend was there in, in class with us, and she had a listening ear. And after, after the uh, Sunday school class and after the service and the parents came and picked up their teens, she was sharing with her mom. I said, tell, with your, tell your mom some of the things that you heard and that we learned. And she went on, and I was like, wow, you were really listening. And it was good to hear that, because I always love to know that in our class, the things that we talk about, the things that we're learning from the word are standing out. We're understanding, and not only understanding, but giving good ear and taking it to heart. And she shared about how these boys were, they were, they were bad boys, mom, and that they were, they were bad, they were drinking and doing drugs. Well, she interpreted it her way. It doesn't say that they were drinking and doing drugs, but they were doing some bad things. What is it that they were doing? It says here that when anybody, verse 13, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came. So not Hophni and Phinehas, but one of the servants that worked in the temple. When they came, while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. So you picture that there is now this offering, a meat offering that has been offered to the Lord. It's sitting on the altar and it's supposed to be burnt up for the Lord. It's God's. And people bring these offerings for many different reasons. It could be a sin offering that they're burning up to the Lord, and it's got to be consumed wholly for God. And that is the way that somebody knows, hey, God has given me forgiveness for my trespass from my sin. It could be a peace offering where they're bringing it for several different reasons, not necessarily for a sin, but their relationship with God is independent on that interaction so they've offered this, and it's to go for the Lord. And what happens is that the priest servant comes and says, I've got this flesh hook. I'm going to take this meat out while it is burning up for God. And what he wants to do is take that, and he says, so um, the priest took it for himself. And the idea is that that's the food that thou, now the priest want, and he wants to take something that was meant for God that was meant to be burned up for the Lord. And not just that it was meant for God, but that this person who has brought this animal to sacrifice for the Lord is depending on a relationship with God to be, this is a conduit for that relationship. They're looking for forgiveness from the Lord. They're looking for something in that relationship with God. And this was their way to do that. And now the priest steps into the middle of that and says, this is now mine. What was for the Lord? And I've now gotten in the way of your worship. That's what's going on here. It says these sons were worthless men. They were men of Belial. Do you see how they were worthless? The purpose for which they were there in the temple was to help people to come to the Lord. And in the middle of that, instead of helping people to have that relationship with the Lord, they come and they take for themselves and frustrate the people's efforts to reach God. That's what's going on. Worthless men. Not just that, but if we drop down several verses, um, Eli also, it says here in verse 22, it was told to Eli. So now Eli is hearing these things that they've been doing. What else have they been doing? They lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregations. So also now they're committing fornication in the context of the temple, in the context of the church, in the context of the worship of God. Where people should be gathering to worship the Lord, again, they step in. 
where the people of God are offering themselves to the Lord and they take them for themselves. These are worthless men. They're trespassed. So there we see a couple of trespasses. One in taking the offering that was meant for God. They take it for themselves. Also, this trespass in fornication, taking the women that came to the temple. And Phineas, remember, has his own wife. And I don't know at what point he is involved in this. Is it before he gets married? Is it while he is married? And if Eli is hearing this, you can bet also his wife is hearing this. The community is hearing this because the tidings have to get back to Eli. So the community knows what is going on. These are worthless men. And their sin stinks. So God speaks to Eli. There's not just the trespass here of Hophni and Phinehas. But look at how God addresses Eli. So it says in verse 27, there came a man of God unto Eli. A man of God, basically a prophet. He's going to come and speak to, interestingly, the man of God, the high priest. So God has to now confront Eli through someone else. And he said, thus saith the Lord, did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father? And what he's talking about there is I appeared to your fathers, your grandfathers, your great-grandfathers, those who served before you in the temple. Did I not appear unto the house of your father when they were in Egypt? Ooh, even before they were given the job to work in the tabernacle. When they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house, when they were slaves. And he says, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? God says, I had... 12 different tribes to choose from, I chose yours. I handpicked your family to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense and wear an ephod before me, and did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the house of Israel. What God's referring to there is that when people would bring their sacrifices, not only were they sacrificing to the Lord, but God said, those that I've selected to be priests who have this job of helping people now reach the Lord, offer their sacrifices to the Lord, those who have that job, there is a portion of the sacrifice that belongs to them. And they were to eat it in the presence of God because they were doing God's work. So there was food already provided for them, and God is pointing that out, and now he's going to say, I already provided for your food. But look what continues to happen. Verse 29, Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice. I gave you something, why are you taking what's mine? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation? Do you hear and do you see where there is sin against the Lord? And who will entreat? Wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons. So God here in speaking to Eli is not dealing with his sons necessarily. He's dealing with something about Eli and Eli's trespass. And Eli's trespass, he says here, you're honoring your sons above me to make yourselves. So yourselves, Eli and his sons, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of my people. Now, I'm not sure how this goes down, but this seems to indicate that Eli as now the priest servant is going and taking that food that wasn't for them, they already have their own. As they're going and taking that, Eli may get, get to participate in that sin of what has been taken that belonged to the Lord. And God says, you're honoring your sons above me and allowing this to go on. 
to make yourselves fat with the cheapest of all the offerings of my people, Israel. Look at the trespass of the people. And again, think about what Eli says. If one man sins against another, the judge is going to judge him. You do wrong, one person to another, both of y'all come before the judge, and the judge will say, okay, I'll hear your case, I'll hear your case, and here's the right response. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? I want to move from the trespass now. He's pointing to this terribleness of God. I'm going to explain that in a moment. When I say terrible here, I use terrible in the same sense that Psalm 47 uses terrible. Psalm 47 begins this way. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. He's calling them to praise. Clap your hands, all you people. And as you come to praise the Lord, what does he say? Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. There has been a triumph of God's people. They're praising God for his triumph. And then look what he says next. For the Lord most high is terrible. He's not talking about terrible in, in the sense of bad. He's not talking about terrible in the sense of not, not, now, now ruined. He's talking about terrible in the sense of, wow, this is fearsome, this is awesome, this is too much to handle. And we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. That's the kind of terrible that I'm pointing to, and I think that Eli is pointing to. If a man sins against another man, there's a judge to step in the middle. But if you sin against God, you come face to face with God Almighty. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. There is a terrible power of God. I would say that God is terrible in the same way that a lightning storm can make you stand in awe. I'm reminded of a time when I was a teenager and my mom and dad, they were out of the house. My dad was probably at work. My mom was probably visiting with friends. And we lived in the country at this time. We were surrounded by cornfields. And so everywhere we looked, on either side, there's cornfields or soybean fields. And our nearest neighbor was about half a mile away on this side and probably, I think, a mile and a half or so on this side. And so you can imagine kind of where we were living. And there's forest about, I don't know, half a mile behind us. And so we could see for a long ways. If in Indiana, it's a flat land, if you've ever been to Indiana. And this storm comes in. And you can imagine just the clouds just rolling, those dark gray Dark, even a little bit of green kind of going on in those clouds. And you know, man, this is a big one. This one is going to blow hard. This one is a, is a difficult storm. And we watched it. And as you, if you've ever seen a storm come in like that, right, there's something compelling about it. There's something attractive in it. You just want to, can I see it all? Can I take this in? Can I capture this on camera? Can I catch this in a video? It's awesome. And so we were watching it roll in. We are just gathering at the window. Just, wow, wow. But it wasn't enough to gather at the window. It was too attractive, this incredible storm and power. So did we stay inside? No. No, we ran outside. We ran outside as the clouds are coming over us, right? And as we ran, let's look at it. A lightning bolt. Boom. I don't know how close it was, but it felt like it was just yards away. And immediately we turned around without a word, rushed back into the house. We had to watch the rest of it from the window. Why? There is this terrible power in the storm. As attractive as it was, as compelling as it was, as much as it drew us in, we knew there was power there that we had to stand in awe of. There was terrible power in the storm. God's power 
is even more than that. Extrapolate that to infinity. His power is more. I would say that God's power is terrible, kind of like standing on the edge of a cliff can paralyze you. Have you ever stood on the edge of a cliff? A couple of years ago, my wife and I were on an anniversary trip, and we were, um, we were hiking up in this mountainous area on the north of Minnesota. I forget, what was it was a Bear Lake area, I think it was. Um, anyway, you could hike up, and you could look down and see Bear Lake, I think it was the name of it, and then also Bean Lake. But you could look literally down. And as we get near that edge, I'm like, okay. I can, kinda, I can see enough. But Abby was a little bit more compelled by the beauty of the view, right? And so she walked a little more closer to the edge. And I was like, don't, don't. Hold back. Her sense of comfort with that edge was more than mine. But what were we compelled to the edge for? There was something beautiful. There's something beautiful to gaze upon. And just to take it all in, I think that's like God's power. And at the same time, there's a line you don't cross. And taking in all that power, you can take it in. But there comes a line that you do not cross. And if you cross it, there is terrible power that you may experience in a very different way. And Eli says to his sons, if a man sins against the Lord, who? Who steps in the middle of that? That terrible power. I'm sure that Eli had had to think about his own ancestors, right? In Aaron's family, the very first high priest, he had two sons who first went to serve the Lord, and those two sons made a grave mistake. God had said where his fire was to come from, that was to be put on his altar, that was to eat up the sacrifices that the people brought. And they took a different fire, and they offered it on the sacrifice of the Lord. And what happened to them? In an instant, they were killed. Terrible power. I'm sure that must have been on Eli's mind. Who will entreat for the one who crosses God? If they had just looked back in time, you could think about Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that were eaten up in one day. And just listen to the words that Genesis used to describe this. It says, The Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. And then if we move forward, after this happens, verse 27, Abraham got up early in the morning the next day. Just imagine this. Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he's looking where those cities used to be, used to. Toward all the plain and beheld and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Terrible power. If somebody sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? Terrible power that I'm sure Eli also could have thought about when there were men who served in the temple, not necessarily as priests, but there was a man named Korah in the days of Moses who said, Moses, you take too much on yourself. We're all sanctified and we are all qualified to do this work, basically. 
and he withstood Moses in the position that Moses had been placed in by God. So Moses says to him, um, actually Moses says to them and before all the people, hereby ye shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works. For I have not done them of my own mind. Moses says, I didn't set myself up here. God put me here. And to make sure that everybody understands that, while these men have said something else, while these men have resisted Moses, but also resisted the Lord, he says, um, if these men die the common death of all men, if these men die like everybody else dies, if they die a normal kind of death, hmm, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord makes a new thing, does something different with them than he's done with others. If the Lord makes a new thing and the earth open her mouth, picture the earth just opening up like a mouth, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertains to them, and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. If someone sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? And the Bible tells us the earth opened her mouth, swallowed them up and their houses and all the men that appertained unto them and all their goods went alive into the pit. And there came a fire of the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered the incense. If someone sins against the Lord, who? Who will entreat for him? There is terrible power. I think we understand now why there was a reason for strong warning. What would make Eli say that to his sons? But I think there's something missing here. I think Eli's knowledge and understanding of God lacks something. Think about that. What is lacking here? A father whose job is in the temple to serve in the temple, to lead his sons to do so, so that the people can come into relationship with God. His job is to come in the middle and say, I'm gonna help you, help you along in your relationship with the Lord. That's his responsibility. And he has sons who are living in sin and they are worthless men violating the sacrifices of God and the people of God. Imagine what that would do to a people. If every time you came to church, somebody who was ministering took and took from you what was your gift for the Lord, stepped in the, in, in the way of your worship, would you still come? I'm sure people stopped coming to the tabernacle. I'm sure people stopped offering sacrifices because they were offended by what Eli's sons had done. Yes, it was horrible, but what is missing here in Eli's understanding of the Lord? The picture I get here is that Eli wants to protect his sons from the Lord, but he knows he can't. How can I protect you from God's wrath? How can I protect you? Have you ever wanted to protect someone who stood at risk of God's wrath? Think about people that you know who have crossed into sin and you know the danger that they are in. What would you do to protect them from that danger? not just about someone else. Let's think about ourselves. Have you ever crossed the Lord and been in that experience of fear and terror? What will happen to me? 
I think there is something missing in what Eli says about the Lord because he wants to protect his sons from the Lord. What he doesn't realize is the heart of God and all of that terrible power. Let's consider the heart of God. If you go back to Judges chapter 2, you don't necessarily need to turn there, but I'm going to read a few verses there that we in our teen class looked at a couple of weeks ago. Around this time that Eli is the high priest, he's also, the Bible says, the judge of the people. In other words, he's the leader of the people. He's the clear spiritual leader. And there were at different points in Israel's journey at this time, judges that God would raise up. Let's hear about this. What's going on with the people first? We'll see the sin of the people, but we'll see where God then brings in judges, leaders. Says they, Israel, verse 12 of chapter two of Judges, forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them up, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods. So what's happened here is the people of Israel, after Joshua has died, they're now following other gods. They kept some of the gods that the people in the land had worshiped, and they're like, now we're going to worship these same gods instead of Jehovah. Okay. They followed other gods and the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. They're sinning against the Lord. And who will entreat for them? It says, and they forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and Ashtaroth, false gods, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Yes, there is terrible power. The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. What does God do? He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them. They've crossed a line. He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Anytime they went out for battle, they were losers, not winners. And who made that happen? The Lord. And they would not hearken to their, sorry, and says, and they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. They did not obey the Lord. And when the Lord raised them up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them. Get the picture. They've offended God. They have sinned against the Lord. They have worshiped other gods, and God needs to let them know that is crossing a line. And so he sends them trouble. And everywhere they go, they are failing. And in the midst of that failure, and in the midst of that danger, and in the midst of those losses, God raises up a judge, a leader, someone to deliver them. So then who is delivering them? The Lord. Who is seeing to it that they are delivered? The Lord. If a man sins against God, who will entreat for him? God raised up judges. The Lord was with that judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Eli saw the judgment of God. He saw that terrible power. What he did not see was the deliverance of God, the heart of God. God is judge and God is deliverer. 
The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should turn around. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 6. You'll see another man who realizes his sin in the presence of God. And look at the, look at the wording here that comes in Isaiah. Let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is going to see God. This is a very familiar passage for many of us. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Isaiah sees God. Kind of like I saw that storm coming in, my brothers and I, and there's something compelling about it. I've got to get nearer. I saw the Lord. How did he see God? Sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. God is exalted in his temple. I saw the Lord. Not only did I see God high and lifted up, his train filled the whole temple. Wow, such glory, such majesty. And above it stood the seraphims, now these angels who serve in God's presence. Each one had six wings. Look at the description of these creatures. Six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Oh, like that storm or like that mountain, like that cliff, there is something compelling. How beautiful this is, how majestic this is, how powerful this is. And Isaiah sees this, something that you and I would love to see, right? How many times have we longed to see God upon his throne, longed to look into heavenly things? And Isaiah says, I saw, I saw that, I saw the Lord. But what is his response? He says, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. There is terrible power here. It says, then said I, woe. Woe. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm in trouble. There is terrible power here. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. What is he saying? I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. And now that I see God, whoa, I'm in trouble. And the picture that I get is that Isaiah is compelled, compelled and attracted to God on this throne. But then there's something that freezes him. There is a fear, just like there is a fear when we walk up to that cliff. There's some place where I have to stop because I am afraid. I can't go any further because there is danger. And Isaiah says, I want to come closer, but whoa. I'm undone. I have sin. Terrible power. If someone sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Not only am I a sinner, but I live with sinners. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have seen him. What happens next? This is, I think, what Eli needed to understand. This is something that was missing in his response, I think, to his sons. After Isaiah confesses, look, I'm a sinner, and all this is wrong with me. I am in trouble. 
Then flew one of the seraphims unto me. These seraphims who serve God, who do God's work, who do God's bidding and dwell there in the presence of God. One of them flies down to Isaiah. And what does he do? Having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. So he's taken basically fire from God's altar and now he's bringing it close to Isaiah. And he laid it upon my mouth. this fire from God. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. This has touched you. This fire from God has touched you. And because of it, look what happens next. And thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Isaiah, who was there saying, I'm undone, I'm in trouble because I've got all this sin. And God now sends a seraphim, sends an angel to him and touches him with the fire of the altar. And he says, this has touched you. Now your sin is taken away. You are purged. You are now clean. And if that is gone, what gets in the way now? There's nothing. What was in the way between Isaiah and the Lord is now removed. And who did that? God did that. God sent his angel to take care of that. I think that is what's missing in Eli's response to his sons. He needed to introduce them to a God who could purge their sin. This is not just an Old Testament thing. But I do want to look at another example. What if somebody, so in other words, in that example, Isaiah confesses, right? Isaiah is like, whew, yeah, I've got this sin. But what if somebody hasn't quite reached that point of repentance? Do we need to protect them from the Lord? Think about yourselves. As I think about myself, there are times where I have walked in sin and I'm like, Lord, I'm kind of caught in the middle of it right now. I'm not quite where I'm like, clean. I'm not out of this. Can I come to you? And I want to, right? Because I know the power of God. I know the glory of God. I've seen it. I've had relationship with him. We've had conversation, right? And in all of that, I'm drawn to the Lord, but I know there is something in me that I'm not letting go of yet. Do I need to be protected from my God? Has there ever been a time where you've been in that situation where you hesitate to go to God and pray because you know what's in you? Can I come to God now in the middle of this? I want you to think about David. Think about David in his sin, the sin that we often like to talk about with David, where he sinned and took Bathsheba, another man's wife. And not only did he take her, but now she's pregnant, and then he kills her husband so that he can hide it all. And the Bible says he lived with that sin and did not confess it. And about a year, I believe, goes by. He is not repentant. If a man sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? And David has not repented. Look what happens. God sends Nathan to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan said to David, he tells him a story. And in that story, he shows David basically another example of his kind of sin. And David is upset by this. And he says, this sin needs to be dealt with. And then Nathan says, the purpose of the story was really to show you 
not what was going on in the story. I'm just exposing your sin. What does Nathan say? He says, you are the man in this story. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, and Nathan is going to speak on behalf of God to David. I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Basically, I would have given you more. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? God is saying, you've sinned against me. And if a man sin against God, who will entreat for him? Well, God has sent Nathan. He says, thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house. You've crossed a line and there is terrible power. And David is going to be troubled for the rest of his life as a result of his sin. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine house, thine own house. Skipping down to verse 13, what's David's response? And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. When God comes in his terrible power, David has to recognize, I have sinned. And what is God's response once he does so? Nathan said to David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. If a man sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? Well, who stepped into the middle of David's situation? David ignored it. David didn't repent. He was unrepentant. Who went after him? Who entreated for him? God did. And he sent Nathan and he said, this is you. This is what you've done. David was then driven to confess and then to receive, yes, punishment, yes, consequences, also forgiveness and wholeness. Because God is not only judge, God is also deliverer. That is not just true for David. That is true also for us. We see this um, in the New Testament. If we look at Romans chapter 8, what a beautiful example Romans is of God's and Christ's deliverance. Who will entreat? And I want you to listen in this passage for words of entreaty, somebody stepping in the middle, somebody who's then going to speak on behalf of someone who has done wrong, someone who's going to intercede. Look in this passage of Romans chapter 8 for wording like that. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation, no terrible power exercised against you. There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, who shall entreat for him? And for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He continues, listen, 
For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death. And the picture here is that if we live in the flesh, we are at risk before a holy God. His terrible power is to be used against us because we have crossed him. If we are after the flesh. But, so, so he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. There is no hope for anyone who has sinned. Except. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye, and in this room, have you walked with God? Have you come to faith in God? Have you received salvation from Jesus Christ? He's talking then about you. He says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit of who? The spirit of God dwells in you. If a man sins against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Who will intercede for him? Who will speak for him? Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is not of his. And if Christ be in you, the whole body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Terrible power. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, look at God's action, not just one of judgment. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, look at God's action. Hmm. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Skipping down to verse 18. Actually, I want to skip down further to verse 26, because we're going to see two agents that come in to entreat for us. Not one. If somebody sins against the Lord, who will entreat for him? Look for two. He says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. We don't know how we should pray in our infirmities, in the things that are off in us in the things that are wrong in us. The Spirit helps our infirmities, for we know not what we, ought, what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. If a man sins against God, who will entreat for him? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God within you will entreat for you. The Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Look at that. Groanings that cannot be uttered. There is this heartfelt, this, this groaning, this effort from the Spirit on our behalf. Look how much God cares. Notice the heart of God. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So what God wants, the Spirit now will speak on our behalf in the midst of us and in the midst of our situation and in the midst of our infirmities. If one sins against God, who will entreat for him? The Spirit of God. Not only that, I said look for two agents and the Holy Spirit is one. Continuing, 
down to verse 31. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Jesus Christ, right? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In other words, the picture is we've come before a holy God and before a throne, and who's going to now accuse us? He said, it is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also, with the Holy Spirit, who also, along with the effort of the Holy Spirit, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on to reveal nothing and no one. If a man sins against God, who shall entreat for him? The Holy Spirit. Who shall entreat for him? Jesus Christ also. If Eli could have gotten that, if his sons could have understood that, if his sons could have received that opportunity for repentance, who would have entreated for them? What deliverance they could have experienced. It's not just them. I don't think I stand alone as one at times who have, I've hesitated before the throne of God. I've hesitated because there's terrible power. I've hesitated because even as somebody who follows the Lord, right, I love him. I sin, and I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe, woe, woe is me, I am undone. Have you ever been paralyzed on the brink of prayer? Have you ever hesitated to come before the Lord in your moment of need, in your moment of weakness, in your own infirmities? We need a touch of God's fire. This can touch me. This can touch you. Your sin and your iniquity is purged. Look at the heart of God. I want you to ponder that. This past week, consider the things that could get in the way of us and our holy God. Consider that we know we are not perfect on this earth and look ahead to the next week. Is there possible danger? Eli says, who will entreat for him? How can I protect my sons? How can I protect my sons from a holy God? And what he should have said was, how can I present my sons to a holy God who is judge, who is also deliverer, who intercedes? And that is why in Hebrews he tells us, let us come boldly 
let us come boldly before a throne of grace. As a matter of fact, it's not lost on me that in Hebrews, not only does he tell us that we can come boldly, but he has this description of Christ, who he calls our high priest. The same job that Eli had, where people were supposed to be able to come before the Lord. Eli had to be judged. Turns out that Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, die in battle in one day. And when Eli hears the news that same day, he falls backward and he dies. He had been high priest. But we, this is where I will go back to what he says. And look at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we'll close with this thought. At the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2. God talks about his judgment on Hophni and Phinehas. This shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons. Verse 34. On Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. What does he say in verse 35? And I will raise me up a faithful priest. Who is God speaking of? Jesus. I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart. Indeed, I said two agents that are on the side of us to intercede for us. But do you hear God the Father saying, he's gonna do my will. So we really have three. The whole Trinity is gathered for our good. The whole Trinity is gathered for our good. And I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before mine anointed for how long? Forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him. Do you come and do you crouch to him? And does he give us more than a morsel of bread? Does he also set us in priest's offices? Look, everyone that is left in thine house shall come and crouch to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and shall say, put me, I pray thee, into one of the priest's offices that I may eat a piece of bread. God says, I'm going to raise up my own priest and he will stand before me forever and he will intercede on our behalf. Behold the goodness of God. That is the God that we worship. 